Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme today by Liz Reimer. Liz is the head teacher at the Whitefield School, a Barnet-based mixed comprehensive catering for ages 11 through to 18. Liz, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Liz. Pleasure having you with us. Um, The purpose of this discussion is to establish, first and foremost, your take on leadership. So if we take that word leader aside for a moment and consider that in a bit more depth, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates on the whole. Okay, so from my point of view, if I think of the word leadership and a leader, I think of somebody who has the vision for an organisation. Um, and I don't want to go on to too many buzzwords, but that really is quite important to me. It's about finding the direction that you want um, your um, institution, and in my case, that's my school, to go in. So to have a really clear pathway through to the future. Um, and I suppose another uh, word that comes to mind very strongly with leaders is, is values. Um, so I'm also making sure that I live my values and I make sure that the institution reflects my values and the values of, of those that work within it. Mm, completely understand where you're coming from from that point of view, Liz. And when we think about leaders um, as well, we think of leadership and management as being sort of fundamentally different things. But I suppose there is a little bit of overlap in the sense that leaders have to be good communicators and also almost good people managers in a sense. And when it yeah. Com- yeah. <laughs> when it comes to people management, um, how would you describe your sort of leadership model in that sort of area? Yeah, I think... Um I mean, management, especially in the, in the current climate in terms of um, the coronavirus, uh, you know, I think my my skill set has shifted uh, quite considerably back to quite a lot of management skills, really, because I'm having to deal with things, um, you know, very quickly and I'm having to make some quite important decisions, but they are mainly deal with, dealing with things at the here and now as opposed to looking forward. So I suppose a real dilemma that I've had is is to, is to balance those two. So having to look after um, the organisation, the structure at the moment, but also seeing, making sure that the, the school is still on its, on, on its current um, journey for its future. So they've, that, that's been quite a challenge over the last few weeks. Um, and I suppose if, in terms of the style of that, it's, it's, about, um, it's, it's about making tough decisions, isn't it, really? And it's about mm. filtering what's really important um, and taking what's really important and making sure that we're dealing with that and and not allowing too much to get down into worrying other people. I, I see it a little bit like an umbrella, if you like. You know, my job is to hold that umbrella up and and to try and stop things from from filtering down that don't need to be down in the school. And I suppose another model that I like to think about when I'm dealing with leadership and management is the whole plate spinning idea. You know, I feel very much that I'm I'm spinning lots of plates and I've got to keep them going. So it's not allowing the the most important ones to drop off their spindle. Mm, I can certainly see where you're coming from from that point of view, Liz. And um, I think it can almost be a lonely place being the leader at the top, can't it? Especially at a time such as this where we're dealing with a crisis like COVID-19. Because I think when you're in a business or an institution organisation where there is some kind of hierarchy, the natural thing to do as an employee is to look above you for that sort of inspiration and direction, as it were, that reassurance amid times of uncertainty and worry. But when you're at the top of the tree, as it were, sort of like yourself, um, and there isn't really anybody above 
of you as such and you're constantly looking down and trying to provide what's required it can feel a little bit difficult um so where is it that you look to at times like this for that sort of inspiration and reassurance that you're on the right track yeah that, that, that's a great great question scott and it's something which is really i've been really thinking about over over the last three months since we've been in this pandemic um I'm very lucky that I have a very strong um, governing body, a board of trustees that I work very closely with. So I have got somebody that I can bounce ideas off there. Um, and with, there's also um, quite a strong network of head teachers, which has also been incredibly supportive um, over the last three months. And I think if one of the advantages that's come out of this pandemic is that some of the schools that perhaps used to be seen as being quite competitive and there wasn't a lot of collaboration between schools that seems to have changed over the last few months and there's been a lot more um, collaborative practice and a lot more working together. So I certainly get my support from fellow head teachers. I get my support from my chair of governors and from my um, unions and, and any other educational um, groups that I'm part of. So just just having the opportunity to chat through, you know, we've got this particular challenge. How are you, how are you facing it? Okay, that's a good idea. Right? Well, that won't suit my context. I'll just tweak it a bit, but thank you very much for that. You know that sharing of ideas and sharing of practice um, has been really helpful. That's really positive to hear, and I suppose from a mental health perspective as well. I mean, you, you've had to, of course, closely manage that, not just, of course, for yourself, but also your employees, um, and also in the education sector. It's important for pupils as well, because with schools closing largely throughout the uh, the course of the pandemic thus far, albeit some have now started to reopen again, there has been that loss of that common social classroom space. Um, and when they do eventually sort of come back to that from this period of social isolation in September, when schools return in earnest, it's not going to be that classroom environment that they were used to beforehand because there will be those sort of student and pupil bubbles, as it were, that will be social distancing in place. So mental health and well-being, very important, and it's going to continue to be so as well, isn't it? Yes, and that's been one of my key focuses over the last few months, um, the well-being of myself, because if I'm not strong, then... I can't support other people and I'm lucky that my family has been around me and, and uh, I've got some support there as well. Um, but also the well-being of my staff and the well-being of the students and also the well-being of their families. You know, within a, within a school, we are a community, so we, you know, we are supporting families. Um, we've not actually shut, you know, like a lot of schools, you know, we've, we've never actually closed the doors at all. We've been open throughout the pandemic and we've had various numbers of children in. Um, and over the last few weeks, increasing number of children um, who have been coming back. Um, but you're right, you know, things will, will be different in September. And I, and I always think about the, the way that I've been talking to my staff is that when we return, I don't really want to return to normal. I want to return to better. And that comes back to that initial conversation we were having um, about vision. Mm. You know, it's, it's not about going back to how things were because there's things that we've got from this pandemic which will actually improve our practice moving forward you know the the online skills the relationship with families um you know things like that have actually have actually improved um, during these last few months so some of some of the things we don't want to drop but yes yeah, school will will look different and will feel different and we've got staff that have had very different experiences during the pandemic you know they might be living on their own they might be um they might have suffered loss you know and as as well as um some of the students have suffered loss. Some of my staff have suffered loss. So it's a, it's a very different um, experience for everybody. It's a very individualised experience, and I suppose the loss as well goes deeper than just um, you know losing somebody unfortunately through a bereavement. You know, some some staff and families have lost 
drifting through um, unemployment. You know, so they they've, mm. they've lost they've lost that as well. So they're quite they're in quite difficult places. So we've had to be a community to support um, everybody, really, staff, students, and and families. And we've heard some incredible stories of how people have really gone above and beyond to provide that support and those services within their communities. Um, is there anything that you would say that you've taken away from this pandemic as something that's been a positive, such as that sort of sense of unity that's come about? And there's anything maybe that you've learned about yourself and those around you during this period? Um I mean, I've had staff that have gone way above and beyond, you know, in terms of contacting parents, contacting families and not giving up if we can't get that first contact, you know, so trying again, trying trying out of working hours. You know, I think I think the whole concept of the hours that, that people work has, has changed during this pandemic. You know, people have been working from home, but it means that they might pick the phone up in the evening and, and, and call a family when they couldn't get them during the day. And families have really appreciated that, but you know, there is that danger of, of then the, the whole work and life balance uh, being very blurred. So, you know, that's that's been another challenge, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've had a, an example of a teacher, you know, we, we, we've got a big music program at the school and, uh, you know, one of the teachers actually went to someone's house to drop off um, some instruments so that the child could actually continue to practice. You know, that, that that's going above and beyond. You know, when we shut down, we lost, uh, we left very quickly and we had to almost, you know, get the children out within a couple of days. And sometimes, you know, they weren't here to pick up their instruments. And the fact that this this music teacher has, has driven around the community delivering violins and violas really just sort of brought tears to my eyes, really. So, um, yeah, that, that, that's an example of, of, of um, some of the good things that the pandemic mm. has brought out in people. And thinking about um, what the uh, the future might bring for a second, um, are there any features of the lockdown period, particularly within the world of education, that you think could end up becoming a permanent part of the way the industry operates? Yeah, I think the online communication, I think um, lots of teachers were quite reluctant to use um, IT in some in you know in some ways so we've had we've been a google school for a number of years uh, but some of my staff were reluctant to make use of it and you know within two days we had to shut down and we all had to learn how to make sure we could use google classroom so it's enabled staff you know it's, it's upskilled staffing to using um, some online platforms that perhaps they they weren't using to their to their fullest extent so that would be one example um governor's meetings you know we, we, i i've got a very strong governing body um, they're all very busy people and getting them together in a, in a school in North London is sometimes quite challenging. So we've had all our governing body meetings um, remotely and they've worked incredibly well. People take the odd technical hitch, of course, but generally they've worked really well and it's meant that it's been quite time time saving for them. You know, they haven't had to travel across London to get to us. Um, and another um, use of online work that's been really successful is um, this whole concept of children you know, developing their independent skills. You know, we've 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 often been accused of force feeding children information, but you know, with this online learning, you know, they can they can watch the videos, they can watch them back, they can go off and do a little bit of project work if something interests them. So I think that that's something which, as a school, we'll certainly embrace moving forward. Um, and finally, you know, sometimes some of the meetings that we've had online have been really successful. So some of the child protection meetings or the special educational needs meetings where if we're in a room, 
sometimes children can be quite intimidated with adults, whether as if we're online. Some of those meetings have been very good. So we've, you know, we've identified some safeguarding issues or we've been able to move forward on some um, special educational needs support that perhaps we wouldn't have done if we'd all been in the same room. So, yeah, there are some, there are some positives which we will take forward from this. That's certainly good to hear. And thinking of what the next 12 months might bring as we do adjust to the challenges of the new normal and schools return in earnest from September, um, what do you envision being on the horizon for yourself for the Whitefield School and what do you really hope to achieve as an institution, Liz? Um, I want to get the children back. Uh, I want to get them back into their lessons. I want to get them settled. I want to get the staff all back um, and feeling safe and secure. Um, and then I want us to continue on our journey. You know, we're we're on a journey of, of being a very successful school, um, but there's always areas that we can improve on. And we know what those areas are. We've identified those areas. Those big priorities don't go away. We might have some small priorities that we've got to deal with um, in order to get us through September and October and November. But after that, you know, we need to get back into our core business, which is to provide the best quality education possible for every every single child, whatever their starting points. And for that, you know, that's going beyond um, just academia. You know, we're a school that really pushes children um, academically, but also through the arts and, um, uh, you know, through sports, uh, through leadership, through debating. You know, I want, I want us to try somehow to get back to offering those all our children all those fantastic experiences because school is more than just a series of lessons. You know, I think we've learned that. That's one other thing that we've learned during the pandemic. You know, if we just had, if we were just dealing with lessons, then we could deal with that via a computer. Uh, but it's the human, the human um, interactions that go on with us in, within a school, um, and all the extras that schools can put on for children—the sports clubs, the music clubs, the drama clubs—those um, those things we need to get back to. So I think next year, it's it's a, a regrouping. It's getting back to where we were, um, and also continuing to move forward. It's certainly going to be an interesting time, Liz, for sure. And I think, you know, it would be fantastic over the course of the next few months to perhaps catch up and have you back on the programme with us just to see how things are getting on in that respect and just see exactly what this new normal is shaping up to be like, because it is all good speculating on it at this point in time. But there are still a great many variables to be considered as well, aren't there? There are. And, you know, we, we could end up having um, a local lockdown or even another national lockdown. So one of the things that we're you know, we spent an awful lot of time preparing is making sure that our online provision is even better. You know, it, it, it has been good and we've, we're, we're, we're very proud of it. And we're very pleased that the amount of contact that we've had with every single one of our children over the, and their families over the last um, three months. But we know we could improve it. So we spent a lot of time um, making sure that the content and the, the way that we deliver online lessons, none of us were experts in this before before the pandemic, but we've become far more expert in that. So we'll continue on that journey of improving um, our, our teaching online so that if we do have another lockdown, um, we're ready for it. And similarly, to make sure that we've got um, no children that won't have access to a computer. You know, again, we've We've had to wait a long time to get the laptops um, from the government. They're, they're trickling through now. But really, we need to make sure that you know every single child, if they do have another um, period of online learning, has access to really quality uh, machines that they can get, get online with. 
Mm, exactly right. Um, and Liz, I have to say, it's been a real pleasure having you join us on the uh, the programme uh, today. And it's been really insightful having you come on to discuss these issues with us. And, you know, I actually think it would be fantastic in future to, um, as I say, not only catch up and have you uh, back on the programme to discuss where the school is at at that point in time, but also, as I said, assess what exactly the new normal is looking like and where we are at at that point in time, depending on what does happen both locally and nationally. Um, it's always really good to have a retrospective look at what we've said but until that point in time i think um it's most important to say continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on because as i say the future is still very much uncertain so let's keep our fingers crossed that it's only going to be upward from here definitely thanks very much scott that was Liz Reimer speaking, head teacher at the Whitefield School in Barnet. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and a prominent late former Labour MP and Secretary of State, of course. Um, during his political career, Lord Blunkett actually rose to prominence to become one of the most well-known politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in the cabinet of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, all despite being blind from birth. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett himself. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and of course whether they can receive the the grant 10,000 or 25,000 all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future but I think the second thing to say and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak Uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And 
in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm. which will help with the recovery. Whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome.
Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would. People criticise the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food, a lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of Thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged? I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual, unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, uh, a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of 
private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you.
This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.